I think it's important to be a little bit scared or have a little bit of fear of what we're doing. We actually are all going through the same level of insecurity, no matter how successful we become. Welcome to The Imposterous. The Imposterous is hosted by me, Michael Knox, and Graham Drew, two rather insecure frauds who will be exploring the motivating and debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome, with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower if you let it. And I just remember standing on a cliff in Ireland, chucking chips in the air. How on earth am I, what am I doing here? My dyslexia is my secret weapon and <laughs> I use it every day. Hey Michael, how are you doing? Graham, good. How about you? How are you today? Not too bad. Sun shining outside. That's good. You know how they say that um, good things come in pairs? I'm not sure if they say that, but today... Come in threes, don't they? Hmm? That's they bad threes. news. Bad news comes in threes, I think. Does it? Okay. Should have rehearsed this. But um, <laughs> today, which is a bit of a first for us, we're talking to um, two people at the same time. Which will require a bit of um, microphone discipline, Andy has informed me of. Um, so I'm going to introduce them and we're going to get into this conversation. Um, as you know, we like to talk about imposter syndrome and analyse that and see how it affects creative people and what it does to their personalities and their work. So I'm just going to introduce you, Graham, because I don't think you know these two. I do not. I know okay. of them, but I don't know them. Okay. So I was asked recently or some time ago, in a, a warm-up to a job interview, the type of people that I would employ, and I talked about copywriters and I said, writers who can write, writers who are strategic, writers who can creatively write. And then when I was having this conversation about Joe, who we're going to talk about, the other guest that we have today said that even her shit work is better than his good stuff. So uh, you're both very way too kind. So Joe Sellers, a Brisbane-born advertising who has worked in a number of agencies, is going to be talking us through this whole idea of pretending. Um, she's worked on some massive campaigns, and we're going to talk about one of them because I think she's got a story about Brian O'Driscoll and a Qantas ad that she might share. But Joe is um, joined by there's You know how people know, Graham, you know how people know where they were when things happen? Mm -hmm. And some people talk about Princess Diana and some people will talk about, I guess, 9-11. Well, there's one Princess ad. Diana on the phone? No. No, no, no. I can tell you, I, I know where I was when I saw one particular ad um, and Graham Rutherford is behind that ad, which was the big ad, which was a changer. And the only reason I know where I was is because the guy that I was working with just said, fuck, when he saw it. Um, so the big ad went viral before there was viral. I'm going to talk to Grant today, um, who has worked a number of agencies, led a number of agencies and is now working founder creative strategic partnership east of everything and a founder of um, the Snowdome foundation which we're going to get to um, as well and talk about that so just wanted to welcome to the imposterous joe sellers and grant rutherford welcome. thanks noxie it's good to be Thank here you. you both entered advertising creative departments around the same time and it was a time when there were some reasonably big names and egos that walked around and liked to remind junior creatives that their work was shit um, and not good enough. Do you think that feeds into what could be this idea of, I don't know, never really doing the work that quite cuts it? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sure it does. I, 
I actually saw this question and thought uh, I, I've been really lucky to actually have avoided the big stomping English your work is shitness and I think um, I came from a place of I feel like I've had the luckiest run in advertising of anyone I've ever known. So I started in Brisbane, obviously, and I was completely nurtured and supported. I started in the studio and I did awards school and this is all a time, you know, where it was a very blokey place to be. But all the way through, even when my award school folio, it was the guys at Mojo who were running the award school and they had split the folios in two and they said one pile's going to Sydney for final judging, one isn't. And I was working at Mojo in the studio. I'd skipped into the room and gone, oh, here's my folio. Is this the pile that's going to Sydney? <laughs> it was just a bit of an awkward silence and look at each other and a bit of a quick shuffle over to the other side. Yeah, 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 that's definitely going. So if I hadn't walked into the room, I don't think my book would have gone to Sydney. Ultimately, it won award school and the job was, uh, the prize was a job in Mojo's creative department and so the story goes on there's a lot of stories like that and I think that um I was pretty lucky to miss out on all the your work is shit I literally worked hard had a lot of luck had a lot of help but I think my imposter syndrome comes from the fact that have I just skimmed through luckily um and I haven't really done that early part of getting getting really um reamed as a junior but I think what I've learned as I've gone on is to relax into it and because you kind of have faith that somebody in the room does know what's going on and you just work along with it and you hope that things come together. I remember when I was really young, I used to be, I couldn't sleep before shoots. I couldn't sleep weeks before shoots because in my head I had to know everything mm. that had to happen. And I still I still get a bit freaked out because of maybe it's a control freak. I mean, I don't know everything, but um, I've been in a lot of situations where I remember thinking, what am I doing here? Like, what, how can I, how have I earned the right to sort of be here? And and um, I think that's a big part of that whole imposter syndrome too, going how have I deserved to, you know, manage to get here, et cetera. One of them being that moment in the on the cliff in Ireland with Brian O'Driscoll and, um you know, we'd written a, a really a, a big hopeful script for Qantas for Rugby World Cup in 2003, my art director and I, who's also a girl, which in the, the Singo's um, creative department there was us and pretty much us and um, you can imagine the competition for for that particular job. And luckily the Qantas clients were also both women and they went, no, we like this one, this is great. So off we went and we'd written it, you know, like it was never going to happen. Like we go to Africa and in the grasses, giraffes walk by Percy Montgomery and then we cut to London and Martin Johnson standing in front of Big Ben, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's Qantas, it had to happen and so it did. And I do remember we were doing recce's on the go we were sort of flying around everywhere because you can't fake it when it's, you know, the best airline. And I just remember standing on a cliff in Ireland in Dingle with Brian O'Driscoll, who was the hottest rugby player in the in the world at the time, yeah. chucking chips in the air to try and get the seagulls to artfully fly around him so that we could get this, you know, perfect shot. And it, it had just been such an amazing experience. So I just remember standing there going, how on earth Emma, what am I doing here? This is absolutely outrageous. 
And um, I think that was just one of them. There's been quite a few of those moments. I guess in a way it's good to have moments like that to not expect things because then, you know, everything seems like a gift. And how about you, Grant? How about your um, entry? Was there a, a fear of doing bad work in a good place for you? Yeah, I think I think there always is because, you know, if you, you know, we've all been at good agencies, right, and I think, you know, it's a prerequisite that you're good going in. So, you know, you, there, there's a, there, you know, whether there are small ponds or big ponds, there are a bunch of great people in there and the expectations are quite high. So you put that expectation on yourself. Um, you know, you, you really got to live up to the dream, whatever that creative dream of that agency is. So, you know, we've all, you know, it's it's funny, you know, one of the first agencies I started at, or actually the first one, this is like a junior guy, and it was like a small independent agency, really creative. And I helped out on a pitch. I wasn't in the pitch itself, but anyway, after the pitch, I walked past the managing director's office, and he's sitting there with all these kind of, you know, the big wigs, and they're all smoking cigars, having a bit of fun and stuff. And I walked past the office, and this guy, Tony White, Thompson White, he said, hey, long face, because I've got a long face. Lucky people can't see me because I'm on a podcast. He said, hey, long face, come here. And I, and I walked back into his office and he goes, I saw that work that you did on that pitch. I saw those visuals you did. They're shit. You should learn how to draw. And all the guys who kind of laughed, you know, chuckled to themselves. And anyway, I just stood there and I'm like, I was completely mortified going as, as if I wasn't, you know, <laughs> I wasn't very confident. It was my first job. And I he basically he, he just basically took the piss out of me anyway. I thought, oh, I'm not gonna let that go. I don't care who he is. And Tony White was pigeon-toed, and famously so. And after he said, you know, you should learn how to draw, I said, Well, you should learn how to fucking walk. And I and I walked out of his office. And I thought, shit, I'm about to lose my job. Wow. But you know, five seconds later, I hear this raucous laughter and, you know, it was like they were just going nuts and they just thought it was the best thing, you know, you know, sort of give it and take it. Um, you know, there was a real expectation that you were really creative. There was a real expectation even at the time that you worked hard and played hard and good things would come to those who, you know, really did have that great collegiate kind of sense, sense of agency and, you know, work together. So, yeah, it was very interesting. Creative departments can be quite a place, you know. They can be good fun. There's some really interesting people, generally extroverts. There's generally kind of something going on that can be a bit intimidating. Is there been a time where you've thought that you didn't belong, that you should be doing something else? No, I, I actually, I think the reason that I'm probably one of the oldest women still in a creative department in the countries no I, I've I think I've always worked out how to hold my own and I think it's a it, it's always been a bit of a sink or swim situation and I, I think the thing that I've always thought is that if you work hard and your work's really good then at the end of the day it doesn't matter who they are they're going to want to be made famous by your work so that you're going to get noticed right and you well hopefully you get noticed and um I think to you know, I, I never really, I think it's only in recent years that I've sort of looked back and gone, yeah, it really was really blokey. And, and there have been a few occasions that you sort of go, oh, this is a bit filthy. Not really sure about that. But at, at the end of the day, I found that I 
quite liked the competitive environment. I didn't like, I think we, I think I probably had to work a little bit harder, be a little bit louder and a little bit more sort of out outspoken maybe to to be heard. There's there's always, I know another um, female creative who always says, you know, I used to say an idea and there'd be silence and then the bloke next to me would say the same idea and the, the, the CD would go, that is great. That's amazing. <laughs> She'd be going, I just said that. <laughs> there's been a lot of that sort of um, situation. But what I've always loved about the creative department is that it's such a mishmash of mad personalities and I think I've always found even if I don't like the people I've always found something interesting and found sort of uh, a bit of a kinship and a bit of a um, not brotherhood but I think an understanding that there's everyone's a little bit kind of bonkers in their own way even the ones in fact the ones who act not bonkers are the most bonkers of all Um, and I really appreciate that about people and I feel like um, all the bad parts of creative advertising agencies, which there, which there are for some people, you know, I think it's just how you look on them and, and the rewards versus the negatives. And um, I, I think that's why I'm still in it because I, I really, I like it. I like the mix of people. I like the competition. I still find it competitive. I still love, you know, being the first to get an idea and, um, you know, getting my idea up if I can and that sort of stuff. I don't mind it. And I grew up basically in Mojo and Singo as two of the most, I guess, most successful but also most low-key agencies in the country and and others after that. But um, I, I, um, I liked it. I thrived in that environment, to be honest. Grant, I was going to ask you about um, this theory that I have about creatives and their ability to defend work and whether we're conditioned to believe there's always something better and therefore like the idea of the imposter syndrome playing into the fact of you know everyone else knows best the more you work the more you work with people the more you present your ideas you know the, the more confident you become I was, I was thinking about is there always a better idea out there you know as you, you as you uh, pose a question you know, with, that we've been taught to kind of think that way. There always is, and yes, there always is, and you should, you know, let your ideas go because other other good ones can be let through the door. You just have to put your ego aside, don't you? You just have to listen. And I think a lot of people, a lot of creators, just like to talk and talk and talk and talk until you know somebody buys their idea. You bludgeon the client over the head. But if you listen to the feedback and you you take that on the chin and you think about what's important, what's not important, and then really sort of maturely go back. And you know, talk uh, objectively about the feedback, and and you know, you probably get to a better kind of spot. So I guess that brings us to caring, Joe, and we want to talk about <laughs> giving a shit. What advice do you give to people? What advice would you give to someone entering the industry, or the advice that you give to yourself about potentially caring too much? I know it's. I do care too much. I'm happy to. <laughs> announced that and I'm with rubber I, I live in a constant fear of failure even when I've done something that I love for a second I'll turn around next week and go that's hideous we could do so much better and and you know I think I don't know if that is a part of every creative but it's certainly a part of me and um I think I think you have to I don't know I've always felt about this particular career that 
again, the word luck comes up, but I've always felt like I'm really lucky to be in this job that I've had this amazing, you know, when I think of imposterism, I think of people like nurses and doctors and and cops and I go, oh, my God, my life has been a ridiculous merry-go-round compared to those people who really do important jobs. Um, So I've always felt, you know, really, really lucky and, and I guess with that sort of feeling, I've always thought I should care more and I should always try my absolute best, otherwise I feel like I'm taking the piss. But that said, the amount of energy and um, stress and cortisol that's gone into overreacting over things like feedback and I don't like the colour of her shirt and all of that stuff, I think, in hindsight and with age, you go, look, you just really have to start choosing, again, which battles to pick and which what to care about and what not to care about. And I think I don't think you can care too much, but I think you have to learn when to stop caring. Yeah, I feel like maybe with a bit of perspective now on life as well and what's important and what's not, you kind of, um, you know, you, you have a different lens on on things. So, I've always that found before. that, um, you know, you know, hiring people who have got kind of, you know, vocations and interests in a creative way outside of the agency because the agency can't just be everything creative to a person because you would not last very long. And I find, you know, it's the difference between, you know, you know, writing, you know, marketing and communications around, you know, a brand and, you know, being really happy with it or being really sad, <laughs> saddened by it because it's a death by a thousand cuts or whatever's happened, taking those hits. But when you have your own creative pursuit, whether it's, you know, painting or, you know, making music, whatever it is, you're, you are the client. It's it's about you and you can express yourself freely and you don't have the scrutiny except for yourself and you can do that thing for yourself. So it kind of offsets, not the evil, it just, you know, offsets that, that kind of creative balance between, you know, being commercially creative and just being creative yourself. And can I ask you then now with East of Everything that you're doing, working for your own, for, for yourself as a founder and also particularly Snowdam Foundation, and I guess that imposter syndrome or, or the opposite of that, of what you've learned through years of working in advertising agencies and creative departments and how you take that um, into those areas. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people know what Snowdam Foundation is. Would you like me to just explain a little yeah, bit? Yeah, it'd be fantastic is? if you could. Yeah, please do. So the Snowdome Foundation I founded uh, 10 years ago when my daughter, Chloe, passed away of leukaemia. And it was like a terrible journey. It was a terrible time. Uh, But at the end of the day, it was like, oh, how can you make a difference? Uh, And so I co-founded this with a a couple of other guys, which has been an amazing journey. It really has. Um, What Snowdome Foundation does is... uh, it, it brings new treatments and cures in blood cancers, leukemia, lymphoma and myeloma to Australians uh, where sometimes they never had a hope in the world. And it's about putting our investments into people who are doing amazing things right now. So it's saved countless lives and it's, you know, the horizon, you know, I can see, I can actually see on the horizon blood cancers being made a manageable condition, not something you died from, but something, you know, at the end of the day you can live with. 41 Aussies are diagnosed with a form of blood cancer each and every day. It's the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in our country. 
So blood stocks are critical for treatments and interventions. With one third of blood donations helping treat people with cancer, the Snowdome Foundation is urging us all to give blood to help buy more time for patients. Ahead of World Blood Donor Day this weekend, Grant Rutherford from the Snowdome Foundation joins us from Melbourne. Grant, thanks for joining us. Tell us about what the foundation does. So that's kind of Chloe's legacy, but my every every moment of advertising 30 years has actually gone into Snowdome. You know, my marketing, advertising, design, strategy skills have been quite invaluable to the organisation because on the emotional level, you know, it was about telling her story, Chloe's story and her love of Snowdome through her journey, which was the kind of entry point for people. And then underneath that was the real credentials of what we were doing, the people we were supporting and the initiatives and the real groundbreaking stuff we were doing into curing blood cancers. So very much like advertising, an emotional way in to go and look under the hood to go, wow, this is an amazing organisation. Do you think fear is a motivation or is it a burden? And what do you do about it? I think it's a little bit of both, actually. I think without fear, I, I, I don't know that you... Um, I don't know that I personally go as far as I possibly can to to push myself along, I guess. So I find fear a motivator, also a little bit of a burden when there's too much of it. But, um, no, I, I think you have to have a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety and have something that keeps it challenging. Otherwise, why, why bother? <laughs> the feeling of, of fear not being good enough or, you know, is it a motivation or a burden? I mean, I, th I think it's, it's sort of straddled both probably every day. Mostly it's like a motivation, this fear, the fear of missing out, the fear of, of, of failure, because it really does it really does drive you. If you didn't really have that kind of fear, then you might sort of drop down to average at best or even kind of worse, and maybe you shouldn't be a creative person in advertising. But, um, you know, I... I, I you know, I can't, I can't switch off this imposterism button all the time. I wish I could. <laughs> Over the years, I've tried to please others, you know, to get that validation. But I think at the end of the day, you know, the, the people you want to impress the most are the consumer, right? Because they're the boss. If you really, really think about it, they're the boss. Instead yeah. of trying to prove that I'm good to someone else, or you're my peers and things, or an agency or a client, you know, I'm more concerned, you know, at the moment is still try to prove that I can be good and that I've still got something in me and be happy with, you know, the sort of work I do. So I'll never stop trying. Because if I if, if you kind of aim for great, you might get good. If you aim for good, you might get really average. If you, you know, aim for average, what are you going to get? Like you have to aim high because it's always going to be somewhere a level down that you're going to actually hit. Sometimes you really hit great heights, but mostly you just want to do what you just want to do great, don't you? This has been yeah. really good. Thank you yeah. to you both for coming on The Imposterous and sharing your, your fears and insecurities and joining us pretenders. Um, and, having us and providing a pretentious environment. <laughs> yeah. <to> pretend you. <laughs> yeah. Like, I didn't realise it was going to be such a therapy session, but, yeah, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> a Zoom group hug. I'm going to go away and overthink this to death tonight now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, guys. Lovely thank to meet you. Yeah, lovely, lovely to, to meet, meet you. you.
Thank you very much for listening to The Imposterous. Apart from our fine, imposterous guests, none of this would have been possible without the help of the following wonderful frauds. Firstly, Andrew Stevenson at We Love Jam Studios, best music and sound house in Australia. If you would like to catch up on all the other podcasts in The Imposterous series, visit theimposterous.com. Here you can also get in touch with us via email.